Our first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5. Okay. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thanks so much, uh, Tamara. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much uh, that you speak to us and, uh, Lord, you make yourself known to us. And, Lord, sometimes the words that you speak are challenging for us and uh, these words are challenging, Lord, and so we ask that you would help us to receive them in faith. Lord, uh, faith trusting that you are good that you are loving, that you're holy and righteous uh, and that to obey your ways is right and good uh, and brings life and refreshment and hope. Lord, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, it's, it's incredibly long time ago now, it seems, but I don't know how many people remember the 23rd of June, 2010. Uh, on that night, what's become now known as the Night of the Long Knives, the Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, was deposed in a late-night spectacular Labour Party coup. The justification after that event was that he was leading a dysfunctional and uh, government and that he was a bit of a control freak. 
whatever the justification was, whether that was right, whether that was right or not, uh, it was a pretty brutal way to deal with that problem within the government. Now, political parties and organisations have all kinds of different ways of dealing with problems and challenges within their ranks. But what about in the church? What do we do in the church when there are problems and challenges? What do we do when there's sin in the church, when someone's doing something that's not right, that's that's against God, that's hurting other people? We'd be fools to think that that could never happen in a church. We know, we only have to read the newspapers uh, or watch the news to know that churches are not immune from those kinds of things. What do we do when there's problems in the church, when there's sin in the church? In many ways, that's what this chapter, what this passage that Tamara read for us is all about. Uh, It's a chapter that's not, I don't think, complicated for us to understand. There's no concepts in here that are particularly confusing necessarily what's hard i think is doing what it says actually putting it into practice it's hard because we're often reluctant to do it because it's very challenging for us to do what it says here to do and because it's challenging because it requires us to trust god that this way is good so let's Begin then, as we look at this passage, by understanding what the issue is that Paul is addressing. He says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So Paul says there's sexual immorality in the church. The fact that he says the man is sleeping with his father's wife not his mother, suggests that it's a stepmother. This man has uh, begun a relationship with his stepmother. That was a relationship that was completely prohibited in the Old Testament, quite, quite explicitly. And Paul says it's, it was even outside the bounds of the Roman culture. Now, Corinth was a pretty kind of immoral place. Prostitution uh, was all over the place. Sexual morality was everywhere. But Paul says, astonishingly, the people in the church have accepted some kind of immorality with, among them that even the culture around them doesn't accept. And not only have they accepted it, not just are they turning a blind eye to it, not only are they not weeping and mourning over it as they ought to be, but they were proud of the fact that this person was among them. It seems that the thing that they were proud about was their tolerance of this particular sin. So, later in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul quotes the Corinthians as saying, I have the right to do anything. That was kind of their understanding of the gospel. We've been forgiven by God, therefore I have the right to do anything, to live however I want to live. But they misunderstood the gospel The good news was not that they'd been forgiven by God so that they could live however they want, but they'd been forgiven by God in order to live for God. But here they are thinking among themselves, what better way for us to show that we've been set free from the law by the gospel, what better way, they thought to themselves, than to accept this man among us, to show that we're tolerant and not judgmental. 
Now, Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. Paul, in fact, says it's their responsibility to judge those within the church. He says it that plainly. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, not interested in that? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but as for you, expel the wicked person from among you. God wants us to, to understand, Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand, God wants us to understand that a key part of our responsibility as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is to judge those in the church. Now, you might think, okay, hang on, Carl, slow down. Didn't Jesus say, do not judge or you will be judged? How do we put judge, those in the church, expel the immoral brother, how do we put that together with do not judge or you will be judged? To understand that, we need to recognise that both in Greek and in which the New Testament was written, and also in English, judge can mean two different things. So in a court, a judge makes a judgment. And that's entirely right for him to do that. That's his job. He has to make a judgment. But he has to make a judgment on the basis of the evidence that's presented to him. If he does that rightly, he is judging rightly. But if a defendant comes into the court and he looks at him and he's wearing you know, untidy clothes and he's got a massive beard uh, and he's got you know, earrings all over him and he looks at him and before he's even heard the evidence, he says, this guy's this guy guilty. He's judging him, isn't he? But he's judging him in quite a different way. He's being what we would often call being judgmental. And that's the difference. Paul, Paul is saying you are to judge rightly within the church. There's a place for judging according to the facts and what we observe. Jesus is saying there's no place for judgmentalism. There's no place for thinking I'm better than you because I'm this and you're that. There's no place for looking down our nose at other people. And so while it's very common for us as Christians to say things like, it's not my place to judge that person, while that sounds very pious, it's actually often badly wrong. So I've often had that experience, I've been talking to someone and they're talking about a Christian person that they know who's living in a way that is completely at odds with the Bible and they'll say to me, Carl, but who am I to judge them? It sounds very pious, it sounds very godly, but actually it's profoundly, profoundly wrong. Yes, it's not our place to look down our nose at other people. It's not our place to be unreasonably critical of others. But if a brother or sister in Christ is living in open and deliberate rebellion against God, it is our place to discern that and to deal with that. Now, we'll come in a moment to thinking 
about how we do that well and how we do that not just on our own but together. But we must understand that it is our responsibility as believers, as members of this church, of any church, it is our responsibility to not overlook sin but to deal with open and unrepentant sin in our midst. The love and grace of God doesn't mean that we overlook sin. It means that we encourage one another to leave it behind, confess it to God and seek to live a new way. So first of all, the Corinthians were proud of their tolerance and acceptance, but they'd misunderstood the nature of the gospel and they'd misunderstood their responsibility to rightly judge brothers and sisters in Christ. From there, Paul goes on to highlight the two costs of not doing that. So that's their responsibility, but what happens if they don't? What happens if we don't do that, if we don't rightly judge? Well, the first cost uh, Paul mentions, he mentions it indirectly, is in verse 5. He says, this is what they're to do, that to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So why are they going through these steps? The reason is in order that this person might be saved. It would be better for this person now to suffer for their flesh, that is their, you know, their present experience, for them to suffer in this present life, than that they suffer for eternity under the wrath and the judgment of God. It would be better for the church to do a, take a difficult step now in order to deal with the sin, in order that in the end this person might turn away from how they're living, truly trust in Christ and be saved. The cost of not doing anything is eternal judgment. The cost of doing something is some immediate pain, but ultimately, hopefully, saving a person from hell. And so we need to remember when one of our brothers and sisters in Christ is living in open, deliberate sin against God, we need to remember that the cost of us not discerning that and dealing with that is that we let them go in a handbasket to hell. By failing to call them to repentance we're failing to address real sin in their life and real unbelief. The second cost of not dealing with sin in the church relates not just to the cost for the person themselves, but to the church. So God says that when those who persist in sin are not dealt with, then eventually the corruption within that one person's life, spreads and corrupts the rest of the church. So Paul likens the situation to yeast spreading throughout dough. I've just started break, uh, baking bread. Uh, it's a bit of an adventure. Uh, I'm a bit embarrassed, though, because I use yeast. I'm not doing sourdough, uh, which seems like some kind of sin in its own right these days. But I'm, I'm just starting, I'm starting at the, ba the basic level. And I'm using yeast. Anyway, I made some bread the other day and there must have been about two kilos, roughly, you know, one and a half to two kilos worth of flour and water and all kinds of other things in it. 
and only about 40 grams of yeast. That's not very much, really. Uh, unfortunately, the yeast kind of got a little bit out of control and, uh, and I did a few things wrong and it just kind of went crazy and it just kind of oozed. Uh, it just kept expanding and expanding and oozing over the side of the bread tin that I had. I thought, done, this is going to be fine and it just kept going uh, and I ended up with a terrible mess uh, all over the bench. A tiny bit of yeast, right? It's a, it's a very small percentage of yeast had an enormous effect uh, on that loaf of bread, on that dough. That's great when you're making bread. It's not great when, it's, when you're at church. And the issue is sin. Uh, but it's true that sin left unaddressed in the life of one or two people in the church will often spread out and affect the life of the whole church. So if greed is left unaddressed in a person's life, increasingly more and more people will begin to take the shape of that person's life as they live in the life of the community, as they continue to share about all the wonderful things that they've been able to buy and spend their money on and how they've been able to uh, kind of decorate their life as they boast about that and, and share their excitement about that with others, increasingly others will begin to be shaped by those same desires. One person's greed becomes a community's greed. Uh, if it's well known that there's a, a young couple in the church, a boyfriend and a, and a girlfriend, and they're sleeping together, they're not married, but they're sleeping together, and no one does anything about it, but it's just kind of, it's just known then eventually all the people around them will begin to think, well, it's not really an issue. The sin spreads from one or two people to, to across the whole community. It's like yeast. And you don't have to teach it. You don't have to stand at the front and preach sermons, you know, say, this is, this is a great way to live. We just see it and we, we absorb it. But it's not just the particular sin, I think, that spreads, but it's also just kind of the indifference to it that spreads as well. So maybe not dealing with sexual immorality might lead some people to think, well, you know, sin in general isn't that bad. So, you know, like if they can live like that, what does it really matter if I cheat on my taxes? What does it really matter if I shortchange people in my business? What does it really matter? Uh, because we're not really serious about sin. God doesn't care. There is nothing more dangerous, God says, to the health of a church than to leave sin addressed. It's bad for the person. It leaves them to hell. And it's bad for the church. It corrupts and distorts us as a community. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we deal well with sin in the church? How do we rightly judge uh, without becoming judgmental? Uh, how do we care for that person who's caught up in a sin? Well, God gives us a number of steps to take. And it's important to realize that what we have here in 1 Corinthians 5 is really the last step, the last couple of steps. We need to understand that uh, the Bible more generally gives us a few other steps that lead up to this place. And it's helpful to understand those first steps so that we get this right 
So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaks, he has a few verses. Uh, You might like to turn to that. It'd be very helpful if you could. To Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. And Jesus has just been talking about how he as a shepherd goes after the lost sheep. You know, there's all these sheep together in the flock. One of them goes away and Jesus as a shepherd goes to bring them back. The question is, how does he do that? How does Jesus as the shepherd do that? Well, it turns out the way that he does it is through us. Through us exercising our responsibility to watch out for those around us. So in Matthew 18 verse 15 he says, If your brother or sister sins, he's talking to all of us, if your brother or sister, that is in Christ, brother or sister in Christ sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Jesus has these three steps. The first step, he says, is is, it's one-on-one, right? Go and talk to them yourself. Don't talk to everybody else about them. Don't ask somebody else to go in your place. Don't hope that somebody else will take responsibility for it. You need to go and do it. If you're concerned about it, pray. Pray for love and strength and courage and go and talk to them. Tell them that you love them and raise the issue. So here's an example. Maybe you're talking to somebody after church or during the week or something like that. And they start complaining about somebody else. Maybe it's somebody else in the church. Maybe it's a ministry leader. Uh, Maybe it's just another person. Maybe it's their spouse. Maybe it's one of their children. And I don't mean they're just complaining. They're not just mentioning things in passing. But they're being very critical about that person. At the time, you don't say anything, but afterwards, it really gets to you, and you think, no, that's something not right. If that's the case, pray about it. Ask to catch up with them. And then say something like, maybe their name is Judy, I hope there's no Judy's here. Judy, uh, I wanted to talk to you because when we were talking the other day, you said some stuff and afterwards I thought, I just, I just felt really uncomfortable with what you'd said. It just seemed, it seemed very critical. And I, just, I, I was just worried about you. Is there something going on? Uh, am I, do you think I'm right to be worried about this? I'm not suggesting that that's an easy thing to do. But if we don't do that, then that person will not have the opportunity. They may not even realise that they're doing it. And if we don't say anything, they will not have the opportunity to deal with it, to repent, to trust in Jesus and to grow. And increasingly I realise that when we don't do things like this, over time, damage, the damage becomes much worse, whatever it is, whether it's 
been critical, whether it's been greedy, whether it's sexual immorality. We need to speak to people. And if when you speak to them, they acknowledge their fault, then we pray with them, we invite them to confess it before God, to seek his forgiveness, and then we just leave the issue. It's dealt with. We don't need to bring it up anymore unless it, it continues, I suppose. But we can just leave it. So that's the first step, one-on-one. Then there's two-on-one. What if they don't listen? What if they don't listen to, uh, to, uh, to what you say when you go to speak to them or they seek to justify their actions? Well, Jesus says, take one or two other people with you who also think that there's an issue. So maybe you go and speak to Judy about uh, the issue that she has and she doesn't agree. She says, I don't, no, I, look, I don't think that's, that's the case. But then you go and speak to a couple of others. You speak to uh, a few others who think, yes, um, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I've also observed that about Judy. Uh, Then you can ask those people to come with you uh, and to speak with that person. uh, And together you can say, Judy, our dear sister, we're worried about you. And that's helpful because it becomes clear then, and it's not just me against you or you against them or whoever it is, but actually there's a few people who think, you know, actually, I think you're right. I actually think this is the most, one of the most important missed steps uh, in church life. We maybe, maybe sometimes we gain the courage to do step one, But we never do step two, the two-on-one. And so people never understand the gravity of the situation. Again, if the person acknowledges the issue, fantastic, you've won your brother or sister. And if you can't find one or two people to agree with you that there's an issue, then you probably need to realise that there's not an issue and you need to drop it. It's just you. It is probably just you. Uh, And so it's helpful, isn't it, to invite those other people in because it helps you to recognise as well when you're out of bounds. Well, what do you do if you go with a couple of people and they still refuse to listen? Well, Jesus says then you need to tell it to the church. In our setting, that would mean communicating it to one of the pastors or elders who will then bring it to the attention of the church. And again, if the church elders or the pastors together don't think that there's an issue, then you probably need to let the matter drop. But if they do think there's an issue, and this person still refuses to listen, then Jesus says that the final step is the same as Paul's final step in 1 Corinthians 5. And we'll come to that in a moment. But what I want to say is, before we come to understanding that last step, what I want to say is this is a long process before we get there. Okay, it's not just something that happens at the drop of a hat. Don't just, it's not something that just happens over the course of a couple of days. Day one, one-on-one. Day two, two-on-one. Day three, church. Day four, that's the end. Okay? This is something that happens over time through prayer and patience and many conversations. We need to realise it's a 
uh, it's a number of steps. It's important to realize that we don't short-circuit any of them, that we don't jump from, from an issue to two-on-one or from an issue to, to the church, but we need to realize uh, there are these steps that we need to take. And we need to take them for the good of the church. So if uh, you're worried about someone, let me please encourage you to go and speak with them. You know, if there's something that has just been bothering you for a while, then pray about it, search the scriptures, and if you think there's an issue, then meet up with the person and talk to them. And maybe, maybe they just didn't realise. Maybe it's not as big an issue as you think it is. Maybe they had no idea. Go and talk to them. If you still think it's an issue, find one or two others who think it's an issue and then deal with it. But we need to take these steps for the good of the person and for the good of the church. Finally then, what do we do if they don't listen? If they still don't listen after all those steps? Uh, what if that person's sin is damaging the church? Uh, what do we do? Well, Paul and Jesus say the same thing and that is that they should be treated as someone who doesn't belong to the church. So Paul says in verse 4, So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Or more forcefully in verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. So the church is to do this last step publicly and together as a community of believers, they are to participate in it together and that I hand this person over to Satan, which really is just a way, I think, of saying that they're publicly to identify that this person is, is not a part of the church. This person, as far as they can tell, does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to publicly do that so that the person knows and so that we all know in the hope that they'll repent uh, and in the hope that their sin won't corrupt the church. Having done that then, gathering the church and publicly putting them out of it, uh, having done that then, uh, both Jesus and Paul say that the final step is to have nothing to do with them. In fact, uh, God says here, don't even eat with them. And I don't think that's just talking about the Lord's Supper. There's, no, there's nothing to suggest here that that's only about fellowship in the Lord's Supper. It's, it's don't even eat with them uh, in, the, in the ordinary course of life. It's important to say uh, that the situation in view here is someone who is claiming to be a Christian and is living in open and unrepentant sin. So Paul says quite clearly, we don't need to worry about associating with people around us who are not claiming to be Christians. We don't need to worry about that. Similarly, I think if somebody is a Christian and abandons the faith completely, so they become an atheist, they become an unbeliever, there's no issue with fellowship. The reason is because there's no lack of clarity about where the person stands before God. They've rejected the gospel, they've rejected Christ. It's clear where they stand. 
They know that, everyone else knows that. But the person who's still claiming to be a Christian and living in unrepentant sin, who when they're challenged refuses to address that, that person is dishonouring God by their life and their claim to know Christ is completely at odds with the manner of their life. And so they're dishonouring Christ in the world, uh, they're leading others uh, in the church into sin and in the world uh, and also uh, there's no reason to believe that, that, that their claim to know Christ is genuine and so they're headed to God's ju- eternal judgment and they don't know it among the nations. And so the purpose of this separation is to protect the reputation of God, it's to protect the church and it's to help the person themselves recognise that they're not right with God in order that they can wake up and turn back to God. Now, I think this last step is the hardest one, I think, for many of us to deal with. We might might be able to come come at speaking to someone one-on-one, maybe two-on-one, but the idea of breaking off fellowship with people who... Uh, living in this way is is very difficult. Uh, and practically, how do we do it? You know, what if the person's our friend? What if they're our child and they're living at home? Uh, what if they're our spouse? What if we break break contact and they have no one else they can talk to God about? What does this look like on the ground? Well, I think it genuinely means... Yeah, I think it genuinely means that we should avoid fellowship with people who claim to be Christians and who are living in unrepentant sin. I'm not sure there's any way around that plain meaning of the text. We need to say to them, I'm sorry... We are not brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not friends. There is no fellowship here because you continue to live in rebellion against God and yet claim to know him. In some circumstances, not being around them will simply not be possible. So we might, you might work with them or you might live with them but we need to do our best to make it clear, and that may mean having a very open and honest conversation. It will mean having a very open and honest conversation to let them know that we have no Christian fellowship with them. That sounds harsh, but God says that it's for their good and for the good of the church. Remember, we don't have to worry about them having heard the gospel because they've been in the church. They've heard the gospel. They know the truth. The issue is not hearing the gospel. The issue is waking up to the truth of it and turning to God in repentance and faith. And even as we separate ourselves from their fellowship, we, of course, weep and mourn and pray for them and keep calling out to them 
that they would repent and trust in Jesus. I think uh, this is very difficult, but I think we need to be serious about dealing with sin in the church. I want to just finish by saying three things very quickly. Uh, And that is, the first thing is, please be prepared for these kinds of things to happen. Uh, So it's a proper part of the functioning of God's church to work in this way. Uh, Where these steps of church discipline fall into disuse, then the church suffers and the church is corrupted. Uh, Second, please realise that all of us are involved in this. This is not the task, the responsibility only of the leaders in the church. In fact, as Jesus shows, the way that he shepherds the church is by each of us being concerned for our brother and sister in Christ. And the way to avoid the later steps is by us all taking those early steps early on. And third, please understand if you are on the receiving end of this process at any time, whatever step that might be, please recognise that it is not because you are unloved, but because you're loved. And that we want to encourage each other to humbly bow before Christ, to trust him and to follow him. The most unloving thing that we can do is to leave people entrenched in their sin and on a highway to hell and not bring them to know that. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, these are pretty heavy things for us to think about. Uh, And uh, Lord, that might, might be for many different reasons. Lord, maybe there are people that we know who are caught up in sin and we know that and we know maybe we should do something about it and we haven't. Lord, if that's uh, any of us here, please encourage us and strengthen us to take that step of love, um, to address our brother and sister uh, and call them to faith in Jesus. Lord, maybe it sits heavily on us because we've been on the receiving end of things like this not done well in the past or we've seen it not done well. Lord, where there's been judgmentalism in the place of proper discernment, we ask for forgiveness and we ask for healing for those wounds which sit deeply. Lord, it may be because these things may sit heavily, Lord, because some of us know that we are caught up in sin. Uh, And we know it, uh, we know about it, and we're not doing anything to turn away from it. Uh, Lord, if that's anyone here, we ask that you would grant grace for them to repent and to trust in you. Uh, But Lord, we also know that uh, these realities are just part of life in this fallen world. And that not not everything is, is a moment of unparalleled joy uh, and ecstasy. Lord, we have so much to look forward to in the gospel. We have so much to be thankful for. And yet, Lord, we're not blind to the 
sin of the world or the sin that lives in our own hearts and the danger that any of us face, that we too could be hardened in unbelief. Lord, please be gracious to us. Please help this heaviness to rightly motivate us to action out of love for you and for people. Uh, And help us, Lord, also to rightly trust in your power to call people through these steps uh, to a renewed faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.